The other day, I accidentally listened to CBC radio. I say accidentally because my vehicle was in the shop and uh, I had to take the shuttle home and the guy driving the shuttle was listening to CBC radio. And uh, it was a segment on the Spanish flu. And in light of everything that has been going on here in the current pandemic, I found it really fascinating. The Spanish flu was intense and it was deadly and experts can estimate that upwards of 50 million people may have died as a cause of the Spanish flu. Uh, it first popped up in Europe during the First World War and the governments involved in the war were worried that the pandemic would affect the morale of the troops and the people uh, who in, in industry who were supporting the war. And so the, the, the governments involved in the war, which was most of them, it was a world war, decided to censor information about the pandemic. They didn't let their people know how bad it was to protect them from the morale declining, except for a place called Spain. Spain was neutral in World War I and didn't subject its media to the same sort of war censorship as the rest of the world. And so Spain's media reported freely on the flu and freely on the effects of the flu. And they were some of the only people in the whole world to report the truth. Well, because they were the only ones talking about the flu, it eventually became dubbed the Spanish flu, and people began to think it originated in Spain when really it didn't. They did the right thing, and yet somehow, a hundred years later, we're still in calling it the Spanish flu. And it's crazy to me here because they were not the origin country, and they actually did the right thing reporting throughout the whole pandemic, and yet somehow they got labeled wrongly. But, but this happens though doesn't it? Uh, sometimes you make the right call, sometimes you do the right thing, and yet somehow people will spin it in a way that reflects negatively upon you. Uh, they will question your intentions, uh, cloud you in negativity, and suddenly the good thing that you've thought you've done is looked at as a bad thing by the people around you. And, and this is something that Jesus knew like really well. Um, all his intentions and his character were continually being questioned and doubted by the people in power at the time. It didn't matter that sick people were being healed and lost people were being found. Uh, the, those in power made it their job, their goal, to run a smear campaign on Jesus. His good deeds were turned into scandals. In this way, Jesus lived an incredibly scandalous life. Uh, that's not typically a word we associate or use to describe Jesus. Scandalous Jesus, even just saying it out loud, makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. But Jesus lived his life in a way that it agitated the established powers of the day. He turned social norms upside down, and he lived in a way that was incredibly countercultural. And we might miss that a bit when we talk about him, when we talk about the stories of Jesus, and we miss it because it is hard for us to understand what the world was like in the first century. In that ancient world, things were so different than they are today. 
Women had basically no rights at all. A man could divorce his wife just by saying it out loud, but a woman was given no such recourse. And when a mob brought a woman caught in adultery to Jesus to have him condemn her, there was no man, it takes two, right? There was no man brought to Jesus, just the woman. A woman's testimony was not even considered to be valid in the court of law. Their word meant nothing compared to a man's. In this world, women were marginalized in ways that we can't even or don't even want to begin to think about. So, it was a scandal when Jesus told the mob threatening to stone the woman caught in adultery to leave her be. And it was a scandal when he told the prostitute who bowed at his feet and washed his feet with her tears that her sins were forgiven. And it was again a scandal when Jesus chose Mary to be the first person to appear to uh, after he was resurrected and chose her to be the first person to preach the story of a resurrected Jesus in a time when a woman's testimony counted for nothing. Jesus chose a woman to be the first to tell people he was alive. And the same is true for children. We live in a time where children are protected and they have rights, but in the first century, when Jesus showed up on the scene, that was not the case. Children were less than. Children were not afforded rights and privileges like they are today. In fact, there was a, prom- a, a, a prominent uh, practice called exposure. If you had an infant, and it was a girl, and you didn't want a girl, or if you had an infant, and you had too many kids already, or if you had an infant, and it had some sort of disability, it was common and acceptable practice to take that infant out to the outskirts of the city, lay it in the wilderness, expose it to the elements, and let that child die. Common, acceptable practice. We can't even imagine a time like that, can we? And so it was a scandal when Jesus rebuked his disciples for stopping the little children from coming to him. So it was a scandal when Jesus looked out at the crowd and he said, you must become like a little child if you ever have a hope of entering the kingdom of God. And so it was a scandal when the early first century Jesus followers would patrol the edges of the city and find these babies being exposed and bring them in and rescue them and adopt them as their own. It was scandalous. And then there was this racism and bigotry. And we live in a time when racism is widely condemned, though it still exists and is something that we have to fight against all the time. But we know it is wrong. But first century, the world that Jesus walked into, racism was even more commonplace than it is today. And genocide was a normal part of the way that governments functioned. Samaritans hated Jews and Jews hated Samaritans. It was a way of life. And so it was scandalous, even unthinkable, when Jesus chose to make a Samaritan the hero of the story when he was talking to his Jewish counterparts. A story that has survived antiquity as the story of the good Samaritan. The people listening to him tell that story would probably have thought there's no such thing as a good person from Samaria. 
But Jesus made them the hero of the story. And it was scandalous when Jesus said that we must love our neighbors, but he said we're not just talking about the people who live next to you or look like you or sound like you. I'm talking about the whole world. All people, all tribes, all trunks, they are your neighbor. And it was scandalous that one of the first non-Jewish people recorded in the Bible as deciding to follow Jesus and, and getting baptized was an Ethiopian eunuch, a black person with a non-binary gender. This is scandalous stuff, you guys. Jesus was a scandalous guy. And scandalous because he elevated and gave liberty to people that society was willing and content just to throw away. He gave women a voice, he treated children with dignity, and he stood for racial equality. If Jesus had a people, it was the down and out, the abused, and the forgotten, the marginalized, and the less thans. The world today is better because Jesus walked in it. Because of the example that he set of his scandalous love. And the world can continue to become a better place even today through him and through us. Over the next four weeks, we're going to take a look at four different scandalous stories from the life of Jesus. Four stories where he was willing to put his reputation on the line to do the right thing in, in face of mounting opposition. And hopefully over the next few weeks, you and I will discover that we too have a scandalous role to play in the world that we live in. You know, I'm at the point in my life now where I'll often start a conversation with my kids that starts with, you know, when I was your age, you know, and, and I tell a story that they really don't want to hear. You know, when I, when I was your age, I didn't get a cell phone until I was 17 years old. When I was your age, people didn't even have internet in their homes, let alone Wi-Fi you could access anywhere. When I was your age, there was no such thing as Facebook or Instagram. The only thing we had was MySpace. Ask me what MySpace is. I, I couldn't even explain it to you. It was that long ago. I've been on Facebook for 14 years now, and one of the features that I really like on there is the memories feature where it shares memories from your past. And, you know, it allows me to see all of the fun things and exciting things I've done over the years. But I also kind of hate it because all of the dumb things I've done over the years show up too, and it causes me to cringe when I discover just how many dumb things I've said and posted on Facebook. And it's all out there, a living record for everyone to see what I've been thinking for the past 14 years. In this age of lightning fast information, you sort of have to be uh, protective of your reputation, right? Online and offline. And while Jesus didn't have to worry about the online stuff, let me tell you, he faced so much in-person persecution and judgment for the things that he did, for the decisions that he made. And Jesus spent time in places where people thought he shouldn't go. He spent time with people that religious folks avoided like the plague. He went to so many parties that he developed a reputation as a, a drunk and a glutton. People questioned all of his decisions, like when he chose to become friends with a guy named Matthew. Matthew was 
a tax collector. And I mean, none of us like paying taxes. The CRA is uh, probably nobody's favorite organization in the world. But to be a tax collector in the days of Jesus was far worse than the CRA. Tax collectors were traitors to their own people. And because of that, they were despised by their own families. And see, the taxes that the Jews paid went to their Roman occupiers. The foreign occupation that was brutal and violent. And everyone would have experienced suffering and violence at the hands of Romans. And and, and to make a point, Rome would crucify hundreds and hundreds of people on the roads leading towards these cities just to make a terrifying point. This is our city, not yours. And so when a Jew earned the right to collect taxes for the Romans, he was becoming a cog in the machine of Jewish persecution. And people hated the tax collectors, not just because they took their money, but because they were collaborators with the enemy. And so who does Jesus invite to be part of his closest circle? to be one of his disciples, not a Pharisee, not a teacher, not another rabbi. Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew, the sellout. Matthew, the Roman sympathizer. It doesn't matter if these things were true or not, it is what people would have believed about him. Jesus invites Matthew to follow him and Matthew uh, immediately invites Jesus over for dinner. And and like you would do, Matthew invited his friends over to meet Jesus. So there was a whole bunch of tax collectors at this dinner, full of the wrong kind of people, full of traitors, full of sinners, full of less thans. It didn't take long for somebody to notice. And this would have been all over TMZ if it existed. Matthew 9 says, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, this is the the people, the religious leaders, the, the religious law. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Their question is dripping with disdain. Don't you know who these people are? Don't you know how despicable they are? Don't you know the kind of people that you're associating yourself with? No self-respecting rabbi would ever be caught in a room full of these many sinners and tax collectors. A scandal is brewing, isn't it? Jesus is about to do Jesus' things. He hears these Pharisees, these religious leaders, complaining about the company. He speaks, and and Jesus is going to speak up. He's going to defend his decision, defend the people. And and the words that he shares are for the Pharisees, but I don't think he even makes eye contact with them. I think he actually says it for the people in the room that he's chosen to spend his time with. He says playfully, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. Now, I don't believe Jesus is being rude here. He's in a room full of people who invited him over for dinner and he's spending time with and he's calling them sick, right? That that, that would be harsh, right? That would be kind of rude. But I don't think he's being rude. I think he's looking at them when he says it. And he looks around the room where he's been enjoying himself and enjoying the company and he says, I've not come for the healthy. I've come for these sickos. 
my friends. I think he's saying, right, guys? This is a good thing, right? You, you like me, I like you, this, this feels right. I think he's being playful. It is scandalous just how open and accepting and gracious Jesus is. No one who comes to him seeking him is turned away. No deep, dark secret, no pile of sin, no mountain of regret is too much for him to handle. For many, the fear of judgment, the scars of shame are enough to keep them from seeking Jesus out. They peek in the doors of churches and they think there's no place for them there. And maybe that's you. Perhaps you're someone who feels like you could never belong to a community like Fort City. You feel like an outcast, just like Matthew. Someone who doesn't belong. Someone who doesn't fit the mold. You've made too many mistakes. You've gone too far. You've compromised too much. What will people think of you if they see you exploring faith with what they know about you? Or maybe it's been the judgmental glances of Christians that have made you feel judged, the piercing words of their condemnation that has been leveled your way. I'm sorry about that. I really, truly am. That story is all too common. Jesus doesn't look at you that way. Jesus is not looking at you with condemnation in your eyes. Jesus does not feel that way about you. No, he has a smile on his face and his hands are reached out and he's inviting you to follow him, not to be perfect, not to have everything together, but to follow him. And he's inviting you to follow him, to discover what it means to have a life walking with a savior whose love is so scandalous that nobody has turned away. If that's you, I want to invite you to decide to follow Jesus for the very first time or for the first time in a long time. I know he'd be glad to have you back. And maybe that's not you. Perhaps you've been a Christian a long time. You've actually become really good at it. Maybe you've surrounded yourself with people who are just like you, stuck in an echo chamber of Christians. Nothing about your faith is scandalous anymore. Maybe there's something you and I can learn here from the example that Jesus set about who we should let into our lives. You know, when Jesus talked to Matthew, when he asked him to follow him, it, it Matthew must have been so very confused. It would not have been lost on Matthew just how odd a request it was. Matthew knew what people thought about him. He knew what it would do to Jesus' reputation for him to associate with him. He had been hurt and he had experienced pain because of these things in his life before. And here is this rabbi, this man of God, this growing celebrity, reaching his hand out to Matthew, not to point a finger, but in the open hand of friendship. Matthew reached back out and he accepted Jesus' invitation to follow him. And he spent the next few years following Jesus all over the place. And he was there and shed tears of sorrow when Jesus died. And he was there and shed tears of joy when he met his resurrected friend, his resurrected Savior. And then Matthew wrote a book 
And we call it the Gospel of Matthew. It's the account, it's the record of the life of his friend, Jesus. And it's the very first book in our New Testament Bibles. Right at the start, Matthew, the tax collector. What a statement. What a position of honor that Matthew, the tax collector, the traitor, the sellout, the outcast, is the first person to tell us about the scandalous love of Jesus. You guys, let's take a minute to pray. Jesus, this morning we come to you and we thank you that you first loved us. Now, we didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it, and that we can't do anything to disqualify ourselves from it, that nothing can separate us from your love. And Jesus, right now, there are people uh, engaged with this service who don't feel that way. They feel far from you. They feel deep shame. They feel great anxiety thinking about their faith. Jesus, today I ask by the Holy Spirit that you would draw them close to yourself today. That they would see your hand reached out to them in grace and love and compassion and acceptance. And they would reach back out and begin to follow you. And for those of us who have been Christians a long time, for those of us who have experienced the status quo of what it means to follow Jesus, remind us again about the scandalous love of Jesus. And maybe teach us how we can be the scandalous love of Jesus to the people around us. Jesus, we are so, so thankful for you. And I pray as we go into our weeks that, Father God, that you would give us chances to love like you. I pray this in your holiest of names. Amen. You guys, I want to encourage you today that if this prayer has resonated with you, that if you have decided for the first time you want to follow Jesus or you decide to come back after being away for a long time, if you have decided to recommit yourself to him, don't just do it in silence. Don't just do it in your room by yourself. Let us know. We would love to celebrate with you and to encourage you and to see where God is going to take you from this day. It's Sunday. Get outside. Enjoy the day. Guys, God bless. And we'll see you out there.